Please open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, the Gospel according to Luke. And we are now in our third week of, of studying the Gospel of Luke, what will likely be two or three years. And i got to give you a heads up. My, my estimation of ten verses a week is just that, an estimation. And Virginia Peterson yesterday informed me that um, despite the fact that she enjoyed the opening messages, we'd only covered four verses in two weeks and we were grossly behind schedule. Um, <laughs> And uh, so it's just an estimate. They're merely guidelines. Um, we'll see where we get. This morning, we're going to cover 20 verses, God willing. So we should be making up for the lost time, Virginia. Um, we should be making up for lost time. 20 verses, trying to deal with um, Luke, five, Luke 1, 5 to 25. As you recall from our introduction to Luke, Luke in the first verses told Theophilus, the, the Greek um, gentry or nobleman that he's writing to, that he's trying to make an orderly account. And we're, we're diving now into the first few chapters, the, the birth cycle, the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. And I just want to look, as you look at your notes, at the structure, because the structure of these opening two chapters is, is very clear, it's very um, intricate. We first get the birth announcement of John the Baptist, and that's what we'll be studying this morning, followed not by the birth of John the Baptist, but by the birth announcement of Jesus to Mary. In both instances, the, the angel Gabriel um, appearing to, to one of the parents and, and speaking. Then we get the two mothers meeting and an exchange between them, which leads to Mary offering a praise um, announcement for her, the birth of her son, not yet born Jesus. Then we get the birth of John the Baptist, followed by birth praise from Zechariah. So in each case, a parent makes a, an utterance of praise, an extolation of God, then we get the birth of Jesus. And so for each child, there's an announcement. For each child, there's a, a praise from one of the parents. From each child, we get the birth account, the two parents coming together. And then Jesus gets additionally the angels praising. Because, of course, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. And, and we get more of Jesus' childhood throughout the rest of chapter 2. But at least for chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, there's strong parallel structure. So we're looking at the first of these, but we're to understand, as we read Luke 1, that we're really, to some degree, going to understand the birth announcement of John the Baptist as we see it against the birth announcement of Jesus, and vice versa. We understand the structure this is taking place, and Luke set out to write an orderly account, and he has very much succeeded. The next question we got to ask is this, in a, in a gospel of the accounts of the life, death, resurrection, Lord Jesus Christ, why do all the gospels begin the story of Jesus with John the Baptist? Why, why start there? I mean, Luke, Luke not only starts with John the Baptist, but with the birth announcement of John the Baptist. As, as Luke is writing to give certainty to these things for Theophilus, as he's writing to give us certainty of the historical particulars he spends great detail laying out not just the birth and the ministry of John the Baptist, but the birth announcement. And I think it's crucial to understand. We're not going to understand why Luke spends so much time dealing with the Baptist, as he's commonly referred to, or as I call him, the immerser, John the immerser. As Pastor Daniel thought dunking John was a little too flippant. Um, <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I should speak respectfully of the greatest of the men born of women. Um, John the Immerser is because he, and this is your, your first blank here in that little box at the top, John the Baptist unites the two Testaments. John the Baptist unites the two Testaments. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist is the, the, come, the close, the, the, the greatest and last of the prophets of the Old Covenant. John the Baptist also links the covenants because if you turn to Malachi, and you can keep your finger there, or if you're, if you're Italian, Malachi, it can work both ways. Um, that was a joke. Okay. Um, Malachi chapter 4. This is the final book of your Old Testament. It also happens to chronologically be the last book of the Old Testament written. Our Old Testaments are not arranged in, in chronological writing order, but in this case, it's a happy coincidence. It lines up. And, and we were studying recently the book of Zechariah, the penultimate prophetic word of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. And after Zechariah, we get one more prophet, Malachi. 
And Malachi closes in chapter 4. Let me see the closing words of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now keep your thumb here because we will be turning back to Malachi. But now let's go back to Luke chapter 1. So the, the final expectation of the Old Testament is that in preparation for the coming Messiah would come one who is defined in Malachi as Elijah. We'll see from our passage, someone who comes in the spirit of Elijah. But this is what we're looking for. And then, after Malachi, from God, there is silence. Utter silence for 400 years. God sends Zechariah. It's going to be great. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to do wonderful things. He's going to restore you. Turn to him. He'll turn to you. You're like the apple of his eye. He's got such great things for you planned and for Jerusalem. He is zealous for Jerusalem. And then Malachi comes and then nothing for 400 years. During which time the the Maccabean revolts take place. During which time Greece rises to power and And as we saw in Zechariah, Alexander the Great passes by Greece on his trip southward down the Mediterranean. But later, as his kingdom fragments, Antiochus Epiphanes sets up an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, sacrifices a pig on it, desecrates the temple that they're building here. Then the, the Romans take them over. And so when we jump 400 years later, the first breaking of that silence is in this passage. We're going to see the end of 400 years of silence from God. And John the Baptist is that next voice. And the angel Gabriel announcing his his birth is that first utterance from God. Why is John the Baptist so essential? He unites the two Testaments. It makes it clear that Christianity is not an innovation. Paul, Paul gets accused of this in his ministry, that he's teaching some new teaching, some new doctrine. And so Luke wants to make it clear that this new covenant and this message is firmly united and firmly set in and firmly connected to all that came before. That's why John the Baptist gets so much attention. That's why his, his prophetic credentials are laid out. This is the one predicted by Malachi. This is the one who in every right is a prophet. And this is the one who unwaveringly pointed to Christ. So if we're trying to establish with certainty the identity of Jesus, we need the credentials of the one who most clearly points to him established as well. That's why we start here. This morning's message, preparations for preparing the way. This is the the birth announcement for the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. There's one other thing you need to be aware of as we read through this account, and that is that Luke connects John's birth to Samuel's. To Samuel's. For those of you in our small groups, you've been going through the study guide on, on 1 Samuel, and you may have already... Noticed, if you stop and think, the connections between the birth of the last prophet of the Old Covenant and the birth of the first prophet of unified Israel. Yes, I know that Moses is referred to as a prophet, but, but there's a sense in which Samuel is the first prophet for Israel in the land. Listen to how, how um, Peter introduces a quotation in Acts 3, speaking, trying to testify to Jesus. He says, of all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and to those who came after him. So there's a sense in which Samuel and his prophetic ministry is seen as the start of something in Israel and the land. Prior to him, there were localized judges who would who would act for God in a particular region, but there was no prophet over the entire people in the land. Moses was a prophet over the entire people, not in the land. But Samuel is the beginning of this prophetic ministry for a prophet for national Israel. And John the Baptist brings that to a close. In both instances, we're told of a barren couple, a barren mother, who goes to the temple. And at the temple has an encounter. And and upon leaving the temple, goes home and a child is conceived. Both children are dedicated to the Lord. Hannah swears in prayer, Lord, if you'll give me this child, a razor will never touch his head. Here we're to hear from, from Gabriel that John will never touch fruit of the vine. So the first 
prophet of national Israel, the last prophet of national Israel. And Luke is, is making it clear. There's parallels. We're trying to give John's prophetic pedigree. John the Baptist truly, he's trying to communicate to Theophilus and to us, is a prophet and what he says we should listen to. And so when he points to Jesus, we should be turned to him ourselves. So our text is 20 verses. We're to dive in now. Let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is in advance in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service had ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's a familiar passage. It's a wonderful passage. We're to look at it in three points. Now remember, the main point here is to establish John the Baptist's credentials or John the Immerser. Because baptized is simply, when, when they translate it, they didn't actually translate. When in your Bibles, or he's referred to as the Baptist, baptized is simply taking a Greek word, baptizo, and bringing it over to English without translating it at all. Baptized simply means to dip, dunk, immerse. In the book of Acts, when the ship is shipwrecked and goes underwater, it gets baptized. And so it's John the Immerser. John the Dunker, John the Dipper. Um, that, that's, that's probably a, a better translation of his ministry and who he is. And, and Luke is intent on establishing his credentials as a prophet. So he's showing that even the birth announcement of this, this great man follows a pattern laid out in Scripture. I mean, you're familiar with these types of echoes. And in some senses, the stories of the Old Testament are setting up predicting this. A, a barren couple the announcement of a, of a special child being born. We're thinking of Samson. We're thinking of, of, of Abraham and Sarah. We're thinking of Hannah. And then he follows the pattern of Samuel, the first prophet. We see the, the, the points clear. Someone goes to the temple. There's an encounter at the temple. For Hannah, it's with Eli. He thinks she's drunk. And then going home and conception and the mother giving praise to God for the child and the child dedicated to the service of the Lord. So let's, let's dive in looking at verses 5 through 7. And, and the story in this sort of prophetic pattern follows the problem-solution-resolution pattern. That's how we'll look at it. First, we see the problem, and we're introduced to a childless couple. A childless couple. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, this is Herod the Great. 
It's a couple Herods in the New Testament. This is, this is the patriarch of the, of the family, of the dynasty. Herod the Great, he lived about, ooh, this is somewhere between 40. He lived between 40, he reigned between 40 and 4 B.C. Um, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, this is the same Herod who's going to put to death all the children under the age of three when he hears about a king being born among the Jews, a wicked man. There's a priest named Zechariah. And as we remember from studying the book of Zechariah, this is a man whose name means God remembers. We don't know what clan he's from. We don't know what tribe he's from. I mean, we know what tribe he's from. We don't know what town he's from. He's from the tribe of Levi. He's of the division of Abijah. That doesn't mean he's a descendant of Abijah. In in 1 Chronicles, David is recorded as having separated the priests into 24 groups. When they came back from Babylon, only four of the groups came back. So so for for the sake of, of... the customs, they broke those four groups into the 24 groups. So Zechariah may not actually have been a descendant of Abijah, but he was in that division of service. And what they would do is two weeks a year, each division would go up to the temple and serve. And for the rest of the year, they'd serve in whatever town they were from. Zechariah is from some unnamed town. He's just a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife the daughters of Aaron. This is a priestly couple, a, a man who's a priest. His wife grew up. All of the men in her family were involved in the priestly service. And her name is Elizabeth. And they make this remarkable statement in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This is a righteous and blameless couple. Now, this is not to say that they are sinless. The Bible speaks this way And it speaks this way of a number of people. Just a little bit later in Luke chapter 2, we talk about Simeon. There's a man, verse 25 of chapter 2, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And in these contexts, we're we're not to understand righteous is perfectly sinless, but here is one who does what is right before God. Implicit, these are people of faith. Implicit, these are people who have responded to God's testimony in Scripture with faith. Implicit, these are justified people. But the emphasis is not only are they people of faith, but their faith is evidenced in faithfulness. They're obedient. They're faithful. They're following the precepts of the law. They're doing what is right. Now, as we keep reading in Luke, to find priests who are faithful and righteous is a rarity. This is a rarity in Israel at this time. People of the priestly class who are actually righteous, actually following the law, not self-righteous, but righteous before God. Not righteous before the eyes of men, but righteous before God. And then what follows in verse 7 then should surprise us. Here's a couple doing what is right. Here's a couple standing out for their good behavior, for their faithfulness, and yet they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. And you may think, that doesn't make sense. You know, the, doesn't the old covenant under, under Sinai, under Moses, promise children among the blessings of, of prosperity that will happen if people are faithful? Well, The promises at Sinai are given to Israel corporately. And we have a righteous couple, the nation itself not so righteous. And the point to get from this is even even back then, the the teachings of today's prosperity gospel were false. You could be faithful. You could do what is right. You can be faithful, and you can do what is right. And God can, for a time, withhold from you the blessings you desire. Good blessings, right blessings, good things. We're going to find out at the end. She... She longed for a child. She had reproach among the people. Look at verse 25. Barrenness at that time was seen as a curse. We can only imagine the the prayers. We can only imagine the anguish, the sorrow, the ridicule. God wasn't punishing them. God wasn't disciplining them. He was preparing them for something far greater. Just think of that. Think of that when, when you think of your prayers that God says no to you on. It's possible he may be saying no because you are being disobedient, because you are being faithless. But sometimes, even when we're faithful, God says no. Whenever God does that, he's, he's, he's got something better in store for us. Now, that better thing may be suffering and knowing who he is better. That better thing might be being conformed to Christ's image more fully or honoring him in some way we don't expect. But wherever God says no, it's not because he's handing us a viper and it's not because he's handing us a stone when we ask for bread and fish. Here's a righteous couple, and they're barren. That's the problem. 
We move on then to the, the majority of the text, the solution, an angelic announcement. An angelic announcement. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So his, his division serving the temple, and there's two incense offerings a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. You can read about that in Exodus 30. We won't go there. But the altar of incense is right in front of the doorway of the Holy of Holies. It's in the holy place, and there's the veil that separates the, the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And right in front of that doorway, if you read Exodus, is this altar of incense. And the priest who offers the incense would come in and, and put the incense in a bowl that had a coals from the altar underneath it. And the incense would go up. And what we see from, from scripture is the picture of this incense is the prayers of the saints going up to God in the book of Revelation that becomes clear. So symbolically, this incense is going up before the altars, the prayers of God's people. And he is chosen by a lot by divine providence, for divine appointment. The setting is the temple in the holy place. And here, because God is sovereign and God is in control, this is no accident, this is no coincidence, he is chosen by lot to enter. And he, this may be the only time in his life he ever enters a holy place. And he goes in with the, with the, to offer the incense, and 400 years of silence breaks. You got to, you got to get the weight of that. Four, our country isn't 400 years old. 400 years of silence from God ends with the words, do not be afraid. And the context is, as he goes in, there's a multitude of people outside praying as well. He's going in, as it were, to offer up symbolic prayers of the people to God. There's a group of people outside the holy place praying. He goes in, and that matters because we're going to return to that multitude at the end of our story. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Every time in my Bible that people see angels, they get scared. (laughs) They get troubled. We see angels depicted as sort of cute little children with wings. Uh Uh-uh. Angels are terrifying. Every Every time angels show up in the Bible, people are scared. They fall down as if dead. Twice in the book of Revelation, John starts to worship one. They're glorious, frightening, awful in the full old sense of the word, full of awe beings. Gabriel's no exception. Zechariah is afraid. First thing out of angels' mouths usually is do not be afraid. There's a reason for that. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now there's some discussion among the commentators, what prayer? Is prayer singular, not prayers? I think given the context, we've just shown a priest goes in to offer up symbolic prayers for Israel. There's a whole group of people outside praying. I think it's the prayer he just offered up. And the reason that's important is people that are divided. Is he referring to the prayers of past bygone years when Zechariah and Elizabeth would pray for a son? I don't think so. It's possible. I don't think so. Um, Zechariah has stopped praying these things. We're going to see. When he gets told he's going to have a son, he doesn't believe. This isn't what he's just prayed. Zechariah has not just prayed, oh Lord God, give me a son. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense to me why he doesn't believe when he's told, you will have a son. No, if he's, if he's truly functioning as a priest, if he's truly being faithful, he's leaving his personal issues aside when he represents the people as a priest. He represents the people. He goes before God. He's praying for the nation. He's praying for the Messiah to come. He's praying for the the restoration of Israel. He's praying for God to work on the people. He's praying for God to keep His Old Testament promises and redeem His people. That's what He and the people would be praying for. And the angel says to him, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And then we get Gabriel's prophecy, the promise of a joyfully received child. Not only will this child who's coming be a great joy and gladness to his parents, but additionally, many will rejoice at his birth. This, this is a child whose coming has, has national impact. This isn't, this isn't a promise or a prophecy simply for this couple. This is one of the great things about our God. God can work nationally and individually. He's going to keep a promise from Malachi and in doing, He's going to give the desire of the heart of an old couple who've been faithful. And He can do both at once. He can, he can prepare the way for His Messiah. He can fulfill Old Testament prophecy. He can give great joy to a nation and answer the long lost prayers 
an old barren couple. You can do all that at once because he's our God and he's great. Promise of a joyfully received child. And now we move on to see the character of the child. Who will this child be? Verse 15. Many will rejoice, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We learn, we learn three things about this child, John. First, he'll be great before the Lord. Now that, that phrase is again repeated. First up in verse 6, the couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous before the Lord. The emphasis we're to see as we keep reading in Luke's Gospel is there are those who are praised before men, there are those who do their righteous deeds before men, and there's the few, there's the remnant, who concerned with what God thinks. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're righteous before God. Now John the Baptist is not going to be on many people's great list. He certainly didn't wear stylish clothes. He wasn't hip and up to date. He, he ate locusts and wild honey, wore camel skin, lived in the wilderness, and had a single message that he preached over and over and over. And so you think of different standards. If it say education, was he great? No, he wasn't great. You think of lineage and birth, was he great? We don't even know much more than he's a Levite from the tribe of Levi. He didn't do great things in the temple. No, he didn't have a ministry in the temple. And yet this passage tells us that John was going to be great before the Lord. In God's estimation, he was going to be great. Now what's interesting, if you, if you turn over a little later in the chapter to the birth announcement of Jesus, John the Baptist is great before the Lord, but look at 135 as Gabriel speaks to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you before the child will be to be born. will be called Holy, the Son of God. And do I have the wrong verse there? Hold on. Um, it's 35, I believe. Thir no, 32. Sorry, 32. A little further back. Speaking of, um, pick it up in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, and he will be great. See, John the Baptist is going to be great before the Lord. Jesus will be great in every sense, full stop. So Jesus is greater. John the Baptist, John the Immerser, is great before the Lord. Jesus is great. How great is John the Immerser going to be? Turn, turn to Luke 7. This is sort of setting up, and we'll get this more fully when we, when we get a little further into Luke. Luke 7, 28. How great will this man John be? And let's actually start with verse 25. Seven twenty-five. Jesus is speaking to the crowd about John the Immerser. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John, John, is John be grateful for the Lord? John is going to be the greatest man of the Old Covenant. That's, it's greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David, Daniel. Greatest man born of women. Why? Well, because he was given the greatest honor and responsibility. To him, it was given to introduce the Son of God to the world. And here, we'll see part of his greatness is his faithfulness in his ministry. So point one, he's great before the Lord in his position and character. And then the next two things we learn about him is what will be withheld from him and what will be given to him. He must not drink wine or strong drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And here are the blanks. We learn that he is dedicated and equipped for lifelong service. Dedicated and equipped for lifelong service. Now there's some discussion as to what is the significance of wine being withheld from John all the days of his life. There's three possibilities. One, it means nothing more than some symbolic representation of the aesthetic harsh life he would live. Remember, Jesus just said he didn't wear soft clothes. He didn't live in luxury. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wore camel skin. 
clothes. I don't, I don't think that's it. There's two other possibilities. One, linking would point in the direction of, of, a, of a priestly role. In Leviticus 10, shortly after Aaron's sons offer strange fire, the Lord gives a new prescription for priests who are about to serve. And in Leviticus 10, verses 8 through 9, the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. So any priest about to go on service in the temple can't touch alcohol. And if that's the implication here, then the implication is John the Baptist is going to be lifelong serving the Lord in some sort of priestly function, and therefore he can't drink alcohol. It's possible. Now, the New Testament never refers to him as a priest. We, we do get here that he's the descendant of both a father and a mother from the tribe of Levi, the sons and daughters of Aaron. And in some sense, you might view his, his, his baptisms of people, his immersions of people as some sort of priestly function. It's possible. The other possibility, though, that I've grown more and more to lean towards is the connection with Samuel. Remember, Samuel's mother in chapter 11, in chapter 1, verse 11, you can turn back, if you had your thumb there, you can turn back to Samuel 1. Um, his mother vowed in verse 11 a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now either Hannah here is inventing some new rite or ritual or she's promising that her son will be a Nazarite from birth. There's only, there's only one Old Testament antecedent for, for not cutting one's hair, and that is a Nazarite vow, where one is given to the service of the Lord for a time and refrains from cutting of hair, from touching dead things, and from drinking alcohol. That, that, that's the combination of three things. And this is the only right, the only promise that would involve not cutting the hair. So most understood that Samuel is a lifelong Nazarite as a result. And given the similarity of Luke's telling of the story of John the Baptist and, and the telling of the story of the birth of Samuel, it's possible here that what's implied is that not only not to touch alcohol for John the Baptist, but also the not cutting of the hair and not touching dead things. We can't be certain because the New Testament doesn't really run with either concept very much. He's never referred to as a Nazarite. He's never referred to as a priest. But what is clear, whichever way you go with it, is he is from the womb set aside for ministry. In both cases, whether it's Leviticus 10 priestly function or whether it's the Nazarite function, the concept is for service. Priests entering into their service have to set aside alcohol. A Nazarite for a specific time has to set aside alcohol. And John the Baptist from birth is on mission. He's not from birth, he's equipped for that mission. The Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant was not given as he is given now as a sign of salvation, but rather an equipping for ministry. And the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals to equip them for that ministry, and he would leave individuals when their ministry was done. And the picture and the point here is that from his mother's womb, John the Baptist is set apart for ministry, and from his mother's womb, John the Baptist is equipped for ministry. The very end of the chapter, verse 80 of chapter 1, we read about John, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John the Baptist didn't get to have a bunch of free time prior to his ministry. Hey, hey, John, as long as you're ready, when it's time to start, go do and please as you want. From, from the get-go, John is on mission. He's waiting in the wilderness, waiting to appear on the stage, as it were, waiting for his time. He's, he's focused. He's on mission. And that's Luke's point here. He will be great before the Lord, and he'll be dedicated and equipped for lifelong service. So what then is that mission? We get that in verses 16 to 17. The purpose and mission of the child. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared well, first, and most obviously, his ministry and his mission is to be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. A prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is the moniker that John is, is spoken of again and again and again. The prophet. He's a prophet. John's gospel also referred to him as a witness, as a martyr, as a, a testifier. 
So, so the New Testament can speak of John as a witness, as a, as a signpost, and as a prophet. And he is this prophet spoken of in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. And then in, in chapter 4, which gets referenced by the angel here, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. In verse 5 of chapter 4 of Malachi, Behold, I send to you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So as, as Gabriel's announcing to John, to, to Zechariah who his son will be, as a faithful priest, this should be obvious to him. He, what he's learning is this miracle son whom God has given to this barren old couple is not just a miracle son for their joy, but he's the promised prophet of Malachi. He is the one who will be the prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. And as we look at John's ministry in the coming weeks and chapters, we'll see that more clearly. But secondly, that prophetic ministry was to call God's children to repentance. To call God's children to repentance. That, that really is the single note that John the Immerser struck again and again and again, and again, turn, turn over to Luke chapter 3. We'll just take a peek. Take a peek in Luke chapter 3. This was the note that characterized John's ministry. John chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch in Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ateria, Draconis, and Lysania, tetrarch of Ab Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Notice Luke's attention to detail. Notice his historic research. Notice this is linking with real history. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. He was very seeker sensitive. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath that come? You start to see a little bit of the power and spirit of Elijah in John the Immerser. Brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yeah, John, John had one note. We had one message, a message of repentance, turning to God, turning from our idols, turning from our sin, turning from our wickedness, and turning to God. It was the note he struck over and over and over and over. Call God's children to repentance. And in doing so, back to Luke 1, in doing so, we read, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, we'll, we'll deal more with this point in the coming weeks when we get to this, but I want, I want you to notice something. When God wants to prepare people to receive and meet his son, what message does he send ahead of time to get them ready? Is it a message of how valuable you are? Is it a message of how great you are? Is it even a message of how much God loves you, cares for you, which is absolutely true? Now, again and again and again, we saw it in Zechariah. How did the book of Zechariah open? Zechariah, a book of comforting words. Repent. The message God sends in preparation for receiving his son is repent. Always. Always and everywhere. How does John prepare the people to receive the Messiah? He prepares the people to receive the Messiah by calling them to turn from their sin, calling them to be reconciled to God, to be ready. He convicts them of their sins. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to John, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John will be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament 
And his ministry would be one of calling God's children to repentance, and in doing so, he would be preparing the people for Jesus. This is in keeping with the New Testament. I'll just read quickly 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul saying, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. What we see is the people that receive Jesus, the very small, the remnant that truly receive Jesus by faith, mostly come out of the disciples of John. We see that in, in John's Gospel in the first chapter. Those who had heard John's message were prepared and didn't stumble over the stumbling block of Jesus. So this son's going to be, he's going to be great for the Lord. He's going to be from birth, equipped for ministry, dedicated for ministry. He's going to be the prophet and the spirit and power of Elijah. His ministry will be fundamentally of one to call God's children to repentance, and in doing so, he prepares the way. That was that language you saw in chapter 3 of making the, the valleys flat and smooth and the straight paths, the crooked paths straight. The, the concept is when a, when a king was going to go travel somewhere, there'd be a, a forward advance party getting the roads ready because kings don't want to ride on bumpy roads and curvy roads and go up and down. And so wherever possible, they make it smooth. Well, the king of kings is coming, And John is the forerunner. And John is getting the people ready, pricking their hearts for their need. Because remember, they're looking for a political savior. They're looking for a savior to save them from the dominion of Rome when they're going to receive a savior to receive them from the dominion and rule of their sin. Only people are convicted of their sin. Only people who are aware of their slavery to sin. Only people crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death are going to be interested in and willing to receive this Messiah who saves first and foremost from the power of sin. That's the logic. And that's John's ministry. In our closing minutes, let's look at the response. The response and then the resolution. So to this great and wonderful announcement, we see Zechariah doubts. Zechariah doubts. Zechariah said to the angel, and remember, this is the break of prophetic silence of 400 years. The announcement of the fulfillment of prophecies made in, in Malachi. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Now, I want to, it's tough here on how hard to be on Zechariah. We're told he's righteous. We're told he's blameless. He's a good guy. And by the end of the chapter, he's back on board. He's, he's agreeing with the angel. His name will be John. And in some senses, he's, he's really not stumbling any more than Abraham stumbled. When Abraham's first told that he and his wife will have a son, Abraham in Genesis 17 fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall I be born to him? Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90, years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, that Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You should call his name Laughter, Isaac. So Zechariah isn't really stumbling any more than Abraham did. However, Zechariah has a couple advantages Abraham didn't have. Namely, Zechariah has the record of Abraham. Zechariah knows that God has and can do these things. Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know of any antecedent events similar to his. I think Abraham gets it more grace. To whom much is given, much is responsible. Zechariah knows the scriptures. He knows that the miraculous story of the birth of Isaac. He knows about Samson's birth. He knows about Samuel's birth. And he doubts. Maybe he gave up praying for this a long time ago. There's a contrast we're going to see between his response and his wife's response. There's a response of unbelief, of doubting. How, how can I know for sure? Maybe, maybe he's saying, don't get my hopes up. It hurt too much last time to hope for this. And before I'm willing to hurt and hope again, give me, give me some sign. Give me some assurance. Give me some confirmation. Mary, by contrast, if you just look over at Mary's response in verse 34, she asks a question in response as well, but hers is not, how will I know? But in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Subtle difference there. How's, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I don't have a husband. I'm not, how am I going to get pregnant? I don't understand. Whereas Zechariah is saying, how can I know? I'm not satisfied. Basically, it's challenging Gabriel's credit. How can I know you're trustworthy, Gabriel? I mean, you're an impressive angel and all, but you know, I am the priest in the holy place, so I don't, just can't be taking any angel's word for it. And, you know, 
I don't know what he's thinking, but he gets, he gets, he gets a rebuke. And, and God's rebuke, his judgment is also his sign. We see that in point two. Gabriel gives a judgment that serves as a sign. And let's not be too hard on Zechariah, but he comes around by the end of the chapter. He starts as a righteous and faithful man. He has a moment of weakness. He has a moment of doubting. Gabriel gives him a judgment that serves as a sign. You want a sign? Okay, you can't talk. It's also possible he was made entirely mute. He couldn't hear as well. If you look at the, the end, the end of uh, the, the chapter, um, they, they sign to him. They come to him um, in verse uh, 62. When they're deciding what to call the child's name, the mother says, just call his name John. In verse 61, they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. Now, the word here for, for mute and silent could also be fully mute. He can't hear, deaf as well. The, the thought is, why are they signaling him? Why don't they just ask him? Why are they, hey, well, this, it could be because he's a full-on mute, deaf and dumb, unable to speak and hear. The word could mean that here. So it's likely it's both. Zechariah's going to be sidelined entirely. And that's his judgment. And that's his son. He gets, he gets some silence, some alone time with him and the Lord to think about things. And what we see is that by the end of his, his quiet time, he gets a timeout, um, he, he responds in faith. He writes on the thing they give to him, the writing tablet, his name is John. And then immediately he's able to speak and hear again. He's given a judgment that serves as a sign. It also serves in the story to, to keep the announcement of John's birth and, and of Elizabeth's pregnancy quiet. What we're going to see in the next week is that Gabriel's going to appear to, to Mary. Look at verse 26, six months later. And the news hasn't spread. The news hasn't spread, we're going to see, because Mary, Elizabeth herself hides herself, withdraws herself, and John isn't, a, I mean, and, and Zechariah isn't able to talk. And so Gabriel's able to say to her, Behold, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is also conceived. The news hasn't got out. So, so Luke's giving us the details of how it can be that such a miraculous, such a significant event, this barren old woman is now pregnant, is, is not the talk of the town and the region. Well, it's because Zechariah can't speak and because she's withdrawn herself. So when Gabriel announces this to Mary, we can understand how Mary hasn't heard about this amazing good news for her cousin. The third response we see is of the crowd. Remember the crowd is introduced back in verse 10, whole multitude of people praying outside at the hour of incense. And here they show up again in verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. They start off with perplexes. We, we know from what, we, from what little we know of, of gathering sources, the priests didn't take a ton of time when they went into the holy place in the Holy of Holies. They did what they had to do quickly, and they got out. You didn't hang around. You didn't treat lightly. They knew the stories of Nadab and Abihu who were a little flippant with their offerings and got struck dead. They knew about... Um, Uzzah, who touched the ark and was struck dead. You don't, you don't mess around. You don't hang out. You don't sit down and take a nap in the holy place. You, you do what you do and you get out. And he's in there for a while. Maybe some of them thought he's been struck dead. I don't, so finally he comes out. They were wondering at the delay. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. They kept making signs to them and remained mute. The crowd understands Zechariah's seen a vision. This has got to be exciting for them. Remember, what were they praying for? They were praying for him and for his ministry, praying for the people, praying for the restoration of Israel, praying that God would keep his promises. And now they know something's afoot, something's happening. They don't know exactly what yet, but this priest had some encounter and he can't talk and he was in for a long time and it's exciting. And in the narrative, it's meant to sort of build the expectation, build the excitement. It's, it's setting the tone for the people. Something's afoot. Something's happening. After 400 years, God's up to something. We'll see the crowds more. The crowds show up. References to the crowds and the multitudes show up more in Luke than in the other synoptic gospels combined. We'll see the crowds again. Let's finally turn to the resolution. In contrast to Zechariah's doubt is Elizabeth's faith. And what Luke tells us is not only did Gabriel, his words, did he make these promises, but his words came true. Verse 34, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among the people. So we learn with no uncertainty, Gabriel's prophecy happened. Gabriel was the angel who stood before the Lord. 
By the way, that's, that's, we, we skipped over that, but I love Gabriel's response. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That's my job description. What do you do for, I, I stand in the presence of God, says Gabriel. I'm Gabriel. I stand, and I was sent to give you good news. You're doubting. Gabriel knew of what he spoke, and what he spoke came to be. Our, the simple fact we can gloss over, our, our God can do as he pleases. If God wants to make old, barren women conceive children, he does it. It's not hard. God wants to make universes. He does it. It's not hard. He is God. And Elizabeth, we don't even know what she's able to piece together. Perhaps she knows something's happened in the temple. We don't know how much her husband is able to communicate to her. But her response is one of praise and faith. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the peoples. And again, this, this just gets to the fact that God is, is doing many things at once. We see here Elizabeth praises the Lord in faith. Elizabeth praises the Lord in faith. Now we know that the ultimate purpose of this story, why it's included in Luke's gospel, the, the big picture is that God is keeping his word. God is sending the prophet like Elijah. God is, is fulfilling Malachi. He's preparing the way for Messiah. He's, he's preparing to prepare the way for the one who will deliver Israel. He's doing all of that, and he's rejoicing the heart of an old woman who wanted the child. I just think that's wonderful. That God can get about in, in saving the world and saving us and in planning this great salvation. He's also here delighting the heart of a faithful woman. You, you know, don't give up on your prayer life just because God said no for a long time. Keep praying. God, God's great at multitasking. He's, no, he is. I might not be so good, Daniel, but God is great at multitasking. And so God can work a national deliverance. God can work a global deliverance. And God can answer the prayers of an old lady who wanted the child. And he can do it all at once because he's God and he's great. And so we see here the preparations for preparing the way. This, this child who is born is a prophet. He's, he's got the pedigree. He's got the angelic announcement and we look forward in the coming weeks to see what he will do. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for being our great God who keeps his word. And not only keeps his word, but Lord, you are mindful of our prayers. And when we ask you for things, you care. And when you do not give us the things we ask for, it's not because you do not care, but because you have greater plans and greater designs. Lord, help us to be patient Help us to be willing to receive your answers of no or not now. Help us to believe in faith that you are working all things together for our good. That you can work the salvation of, of all of mankind and our prayer life together into your will. And Lord, we thank you that these things truly happen, that Jesus didn't simply get raised in our hearts, but these events took place in history and in time and in space and 2,000 years ago you, you ended the silence you sent an angel to announce the birth of a miracle child who would prepare your people for their Messiah and Lord I just pray that you'd be preparing our hearts especially if there are any here who do not know you prepare our hearts for your son that we would see him that we would receive him by faith in Jesus name amen Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.